Father in heaven, that moment of silence earlier was just precious in your sight. So Lord, I would want to have an added word of prayer that you'll guide now as we open up your word to see that we are one body, one bride that's looking forward to the soon return of their king and their spouse. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I still remember being nervous as I wrote the note. I, my grandfather had given me a note that said, pretty much at the end of each line was a word that I wanted the recipient to have and to grasp. And the one that he gave me said at the end of each line, the first line said, may, second line said, I kiss you. So I gave that to the girl that I was planning to marry. And that one worked out all right. So then I wrote another note. And I'm a poet, and especially when I have uh, a lot of time to do it. And I've written a lot of poetry because my, my relationship with God and also um, at times with my wife. And I decided that there I am. I've known this girl for a little while. We've just hopefully to have like a one-year courtship. I was looking forward to maybe the next year marrying her. And I don't remember exactly the time frame on this, but I remember thinking to myself, it's time to write another note. And so I still remember being nervous as I'm writing and trying to make sure it's creative and it says, will you marry me? And it's hard if you, if you try to write poetry to have those type of things at the end of the line and make sure the whole, everything matches up and it's not some weird uh, bit of gerb, uh, gibberish leading up to it. So I wrote this note and end of each line had this word and I handed it to Marie and I thought to myself, I hope she doesn't say no and say no. And of course she didn't, otherwise we wouldn't be here today with four kids and everything else going on in our lives. But as I think of experiences like that, and you could think of the proposal or receiving the proposal or situations where you, you, you're interacting with somebody that you just hope to have a deep relationship with, that there are times when there's that nervousness where you don't know how it's going to be received as far as what you are offering to that person in the relationship. And as I think of things like that, especially this theme of the body of Christ, us being one with each other, and then one with Christ, I think to myself, well, isn't that kind of what we find in John 14, where we have an example of heaven sending us a note, here we are years later, and it's saying to us, will you be one with Christ? Will you be with him forever? And in John 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms we looked at before at a different communion. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You will be with him forever. And we looked at this language before and noticed the betrothal, the proposal, all of that is in this, in this text it's like a young man who goes and, and goes to another village, finds a young lady that he wants to marry. He sends eventually a messenger, and the messenger goes and takes that proposal from him and his father, and eventually he comes and meets that prospective bride and says, I'm going to come back. Don't worry. After the betrothal period, I'll be back, and I have a place for you in my father's house. Sometimes it was living with the parents, small quarters, but I'm coming back. Don't worry about it. And Jesus uses the words here and says, I am coming back, not I will come back, way off somewhere in the future, but I am in the present tense returning. As soon as the words are coming out of my mouth, you can count on them. I've already begun the process. So he didn't write a note with the end stress on it like I did. 
But he did send us this record to say, will you be with me forever? And as I think of that type of a relationship then, spiritually, a relationship that as far as I can read in the Bible and I can read in Ellen White's writings is deeper than even that of a spousal relationship is that which is what Christ wants with each one of us. I come across texts like this you know, in Ephesians. What does a spiritual relationship look like? Well, look at Ephesians 5. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. And people have used this and stopped there and made all kinds of statements from there. But I, I, as I read through this whole thing, there's a beautiful context here of the cross. It says, Wives, submit or subordinate or yield yourselves to. Like, it's like you're going to somebody... And you might even know the answer, but you are, are respectful of them, and you're saying, you know, what do you think? Yielding to them for advice. There are times when I know the answer, but I ask you, well, what are your thoughts? And this is the type of language we're talking about here, deferring, giving that proper respect. And he goes on, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. That's his bride. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. It says, as to the Lord. How is the spouse supposed to know if, if they're yielding or subordinating themselves as to the Lord? Well, they have to know the Lord then, don't they? You've got to trust the person that you're yielding to. You've got to see that person as trustworthy. So you could apply this to your relationships if you want, but I'm applying this to my relationship with Christ as well. It's a dual application here. And so... How do I know that Christ is trustworthy? You go right here. I mean, this is the one. This is the proof that he would go to any extreme to save me and you. That he would put my needs first. Why wouldn't I want to submit my life to defer to him in all things? And Paul is saying this is how it should be in the relationships between husband and wife as well. And so, yes, I will submit to him because I know that he is trustworthy. You say, well, does that mean you don't submit to your spouse if you don't think they're trustworthy? No, it's not saying that at all. Paul ha Peter has a section on that, and Paul has advice about that as well. Actually, you win them over through your kindness and your actions in the Christian heart if they're not trustworthy. But Christ is, and the proof is at the cross and beyond. It goes on and says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church gave himself that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself as the glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such things that it should be holy and without blemish. This is saying to the husbands, even as Christ loved the church, you love your spouse. How did Christ love the church? Gave himself. Sanctifies it. Do you know of anything more encouraging or, or a motive that's pure than love? Knowing that the other is looking out for you, exhibiting that love to you. It's kind of like um, you've had a real busy day, maybe been yelled at or stressed just beyond, and you think there's going to be a straw that's going to break the camel's back, you know, one of those days. And you come in and you're tired and your spouse is tired and you see that task that needs to be done, and you think, well, they could handle that. But then the love says to you, why don't you just surprise them? So you tiredly go over there and you do that. 
And you don't, I don't, you don't even care if they notice or not. You're just saying, I'm taking care of them. That's what we're having being described here in the Bible. And I can think of no one else who was plagued more with temptations, more with people coming after him, more with religious people yelling at him than Jesus himself, and yet he goes all the way to Gethsemane, weighed down with your sins and mine, doesn't feel like going to the cross, gets to the cross, and the only thing he can do from the cross is breathe and utter prayers and encouraging words to people. That is amazing to think when you don't even feel like it. That's the love that is being described here. If we husbands would show that, I don't think we would have in our country some of the problems that we have. But unfortunately, uh, that's not always the case. And so I covet this type of holiness in my life so that we will have this wonderful relationship. So even as Christ gave, that means I've got to know how Christ gave, so I've got to go keep looking to Him for my example. He gave Himself, I give myself. I can trust somebody like that. We go on. And it says in verse 28 and onward, So men ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord loves the church. Even as the Lord loves the church. The Lord has in mind our true happiness. It's not what the world thinks either. Can you imagine... That feeling you get when you're sitting beside a waterfall and you're just watching the pool there, watching the kids or people just having just a gleeful time. And you think to yourself when you leave the waterfall, well, I guess i got to go back to whatever it is, fill in the blank. Do you have the feeling as you think of Christ that, that yeah, there'll be work and things to do, but overall that peace that you have there continues with you forever. Isn't that our happiness in mind that God would provide that? I'll probably never be able to provide a house next to a waterfall for my family. But Christ offers the tree of life right there next to the river of life. And I can't imagine anything better than sitting there learning from Jesus and saying, yeah, it was all worth it. You are so good. The fact that I'm even here proves that you are so good. And so you find these type of things, analogies that Paul's using. He's saying, yeah, it's about your relationship with each other, but it's more about your relationship with the Lord. So Paul's saying, Jesus and his church are one. You cannot disconnect Jesus from his church. When people say, I leave, I'm leaving the church, I'm saying to them, yeah, well, is, didn't Christ lead you to that place? weren't you learning about him at that place? Then you and him had better talk about that before you decide to depart from that place. We are one with Christ. And Jesus says here, he loves himself. That means that he treats us the way he would want to be treated. The way that he would provide for us is beyond what this world can do. And this harkens back to that oneness idea we saw. Remember that? For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, the two of them shall be one flesh. You've been around someone long enough, you begin to, to sometimes you can make a decision without even talking to each other. I mean, it's not always, you should be talking to each other. But, but oneness, this, this idea of closeness, completing the other person's thought as they're talking. I mean, this is, 
how are we like this with Christ? Can we, do we interact with him enough to say, as he's speaking to us through his word, we could almost finish his sentence because we know him so much? This is what's being described here. Adam and Eve had that perfectly before the fall. And now we have it imperfectly after the fall. But Christ offers to restore perfect oneness through him. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Yeah, I'm talking about husbands and wives, but I'm using that. I'm using that relationship that you have to compare to, to point you to Jesus. You look at the relationship that the husband and wife have. You see the, how they interact with each other ideally for the Bible, and if you hadn't had a perfect experience, like I didn't have a perfect childhood, divorce was involved, but still, Christ offers what the world has destroyed or Satan has destroyed. He offers perfect oneness if he is the foundation. And so it's a mystery, and Paul uses a word specifically there that they would use in the cults around in that day, these religious cults where you had to be initiated and if you fulfilled the initiation, then you were able to get certain knowledge. The Gnostics had this type of mentality. Others had as well. But as you think about Christ, it could also be a deeper definition. And you look in the Greek, and it could be between information known between just between two parties. Aren't there things that you talk about with certain people that you don't talk about with anybody else? This is saying that's the way it's supposed to be with Christ as well. So as I look at Paul's text here, I, I do apply it to my life and my, my marriage, but I also apply it specifically to my spiritual life with Jesus. He's offering to cleanse me. He's offering to show me my worth. He's offering to say, there are things I want to reveal to you. Will you are you willing to take time with me for me to show you those things? I'm willing to share that with you. And so the oneness concept is there. It's in the home, and I can only imagine living in homes like that. Can you imagine being in close proximity? The way that, I mean, Paul's talking to audiences that live in, some of them in Ephesus live in metropolitan areas. They have homes that are really close quarters. You might have a courtyard for your animals, and, and maybe you have chickens and a few sheep or something like that, and you're all closed into this little area there. And then at night, you go into this darker area for your home. I mean, it's, some of these were only like 35 to 100 square feet. And you as a family are right there. And he's telling these people, you need to have this true happiness in your home. But the foundation is Jesus. I'm really talking about the relationship between Christ and his church. He wants to be that close to us. He doesn't care what situation we find ourselves in here in this world. He's providing so much more for us. He wants to be close to us until we are all one with him. And how does that happen? Ephesians 5 says, through the cleansing of his word, You ever have somebody cuss you out? I mean, as a pastor, you don't expect that at all, but it happens sometimes. And you're like, and your mind just starts reeling. And you can't get that out of your mind for some time. And you go home from that interaction or phone call or whatever it is, and it just keeps playing over in your mind. It just, how do you get rid of that? I, I have found that the really only way to get rid of that is to engage in a different atmosphere of prayer and to go back into God's Word and say, Lord, I need to have time with you because I don't want to think about those things. Those things could roll around like a broken record all the way even until you're sitting here this morning. It happened to me. I was sitting here this morning and I was like, Man, 
I just can't get these things out of my mind. And so I sat there. And I had opened up a place last week when I sat here in the sanctuary when similar things were happening. And I opened it up and the next, song, the next area over there was the very text I read last week for our sermon. And I read through it again and the Lord's like, Murray, I got it handled. Just focus on me. I'm putting the armor on. I'm taking care of you. You don't worry about them. You just focus on me. You're the sinner in the text who needs to repent and turn to me and don't let anybody else control you. That is called a cleansing from his word. It's like taking a vacation from this world. And it's not a placebo effect for your mind or some panacea for your mind. It's real. This world is just now discovering what dark matter is and things that are out there in the eons, in the eons uh, ages, in the, in the cosmos. But the Bible is right there. And you all know what it does to your mind to help you and be cleansed of the things of this world. So if that is such a huge benefit, how much time am I spending with it? You know, we know Daniel spent morning, noon, and night. Jesus spent all nights in prayer connecting. What would happen if we just spent one hour a day, like we're told? Just one hour a day focusing on the life of Christ. I think it would change a lot of things. It would cleanse us, and we would be very prayerful. Look at this text, this quotation here. If we keep the Lord ever before us, that's the one we're focusing on this text. Keep him before us, allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to him. That's why when I begin time with him, I just say, Lord, I just, sometimes I can't say anything because of his goodness. You are good. Pay him a compliment. Say, Lord, I just don't understand your goodness in this situation. How Here I am, and you seem to have worked everything out. Is that perfect love? Talk to him and praise him. Thank him for things. We shall have a continual freshness in our religious life. Our prayers will take the form of conversation with God as we would talk with a friend. He will speak his mysteries to us personally. That's what Paul was talking about. He'll come and speak them right to you personally. Often there will come to us a sweet, joyful sense of the presence of Jesus. If you've experienced that, you know what it's talking about. It's like you're sitting there and it's like heaven has touched you. I don't know how to explain it. And some might feel nervous about that. But it's something like the goodness of God bubbling up inside of you. That you just think, wow. No wonder Ellen White and them fell down as dead men in front of the presence of God. Often our hearts will burn within us as he draws nigh to commune with us as he did with Enoch. goes on, when this is in truth the experience of the Christian, there is seen in his or her life a simplicity, a humility, meekness, and lowliness of heart that show to all with whom his, he associates that he has been with Jesus and learned of him. And so we can be like Jesus if we spend time with Jesus. Communion is just spending time focusing on Jesus. Seems like a simple thing to do. But through the emblems we're remembering, through the foot washing we're remembering, through interacting with each other we are remembering. And his spirit, like was read earlier, begins to dwell amongst us. Ephesians 5 goes on, we should, she goes on, she said, we should meditate upon the scriptures, thinking soberly and candidly upon the things that pertain to our eternal salvation, the infinite mercy and love of Jesus, the sacrifice made on our behalf, call for most serious and solemn reflection. We should dwell upon the character of our dear Redeemer and Intercessor. We should seek to comprehend the meaning of the plan of salvation. We should meditate upon the mission of Him who came to save His people 
from their sins. If there is not some one word to encapsulate this, I, I, think, I can't really think of any other word than stillness. Spending time hearing from Christ through His Word. Being still before Him. So what am I doing while I wait? I'm meditating upon the Scriptures. I'm allowing that to cleanse me from this world. And I'm looking at His character, looking to comprehend His plan, looking to hopefully, eventually mimic His mission so people will be drawn closer to Jesus. And so what was His mission? Seek and save the lost. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. So our task as the body of Christ, as the true spouse of Christ, is to focus on Him. Be one with Him. So I spend time focusing on Him in my devotions. I want to promote oneness in the home and the church. That's what Paul was talking about. That's the body of Christ. But remember that uh, quotation where it says, the closer we come to Christ, the closer we come to each other. It says, imagine a big circle. Kind of like that old bike you used to have or had those spokes in it. Or that new one, the fancy versions that they have now. And you've got that wheel there and all those spokes come together and they connect. And he, she is saying, the closer we all come to Christ and the closer we come to each other, we connect with each other as we come close to Christ. So communion is a time where we as a body focus on staying close to and preparing to meet Jesus. That's what we're doing here this morning. He gave us in Matthew 26, as they were eating, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink all of it. So the bread represents that we want to be part of his body. also represents his, his body, his life, perfect life for us. And of course, we know what the juice represents, his blood that was shed for us. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Each time we come together, like desire of ages during the prayer time, Jesus is here. He's fulfilling his promise and saying, will you stay committed to me until that day when we drink it anew together? When you see me face to face? When shall I see my Father's face? I want to see it soon. What about you? And so the last drink on earth was a promise of a supper to come. It was, in essence, another note saying, will you marry me? Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're looking forward to that beautiful supper. Then why wouldn't I want to choose to remember at least on a quarterly basis. Some people do it on a monthly basis. Some do it on a weekly basis as far as a church. But we are doing it here today, saying we want to remember and be like Jesus. And one of the other symbols that he gave us was the foot washing. How does that point me to my heavenly spouse? Can't you trust somebody who's willing to serve you like that? There you were, walking around, dusty roads, maybe getting blisters on your feet. You ever stuck your feet in a cold stream after you've been hiking for a while and just, right? Imagine that type of thing. They've been busy and all of that, and they get the preparations for the Passover. They come to the upper room, and Jesus, what's he do? He ministers to their needs. And he says, blessed are you if you do likewise. And he wasn't just talking to Peter and them. That's an echo that goes down through time. And so that reminds me when I'm having my feet washed that Jesus is cleansing me 
I'm doing as He's told me to do. It's what His Word has told me. I'll be blessed if I do it. And then as I watch somebody else and serve somebody else, I'm being like Jesus in the Bible, how He, he served us. And so it helps me be thankful that I'm part of the body of Christ, that I'm His friend, and that I'll be with Him forever. So this morning we have two phases of our communion service. Our first phase is the foot washing. I invite you to take out your bulletin and you'll notice in the main part here in the order of service, it lists where the different people are meeting. I invite everyone, if you're a born-again Christian, please consider participating in the foot washing. It's, it's something that it's something that's between you and Christ, really. There's a human being there as well, but it's really between you and Christ. Lord, is there anything that I need to have washed? Is there anything this week that I just need to put away? Is there anything between me and my Savior? Help me to wash it away. This part of the service is very solemn. The next part is a time where we're celebrating, like, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me. And so we'll dismiss at this time, and we'll meet back here when everybody is finished. Welcome to the Lord's Supper.